Welcome to Thought Leaders Unplugged, a podcast series that examines the most pressing issues of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in higher education. Brought to you by the University of Maryland's Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. My name is Kaya McDermott, pronouns she, her, hers, and I serve as a staff consultant with the Center and one of your podcast co-hosts. My name is Tamia Webster. I use she, her pronouns. I serve as a staff consultant in the center and one of your co-hosts for the podcast. And my name is Roger L. Worthington. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland and executive director for the center. The Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education has a four-pronged mission, functioning as a national think tank, a research center, an academic institute, and a consulting organization for equity, justice, inclusion, diversity, access, and anti-racism in higher education. This podcast series was developed as a part of the center's think tank mission, where in each episode of our podcast, we have candid conversations with renowned thought leaders at the forefront of higher education equity and justice efforts. Our guests will share innovative strategies, personal stories, and research-driven solutions that inspire us to reimagine a more equitable future for all learners and for the faculty, staff, and administrators who serve them. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Carlton Green, a licensed psychologist, trainer, facilitator, speaker, and consultant, whose 30-year span in higher education settings focuses on racial identity development and liberation. This thought leader brings us incredible perspective on the role of power, racial justice, and the need for healing in higher education institutions. Dr. Green calls for a paradigm shift and asks us to imagine a world where we prioritize emotional justice and the healing of marginalized communities. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay connected for upcoming episodes where we learn from thought leaders, exchange ideas, and co-create an inclusive educational landscape. Again, my name is Roger L. Worthington. I am Tamia Webster. And I'm Kaya McDermott. This is Thought Leaders Unplugged. Hey, Tamia. Hey, Kaya. Hey, Roger. Hey, Kaya. How were your weekends? Hey, Mia. Hey, Roger. Weekend was great. I went horseback riding, actually. What about y'all? Nice. Ooh, that's intense. Yeah, horseback riding. I haven't done that in a long time. Right. I, I, I went out and threw a, a softball and a football a little bit over the weekend. That was fun. I was at the illustrious Harvard University with the illustrious Howard University. The illustrious. The illustrious. <laughs> Well, that, that's a good segue into what we're going to talk a little bit about today, what we talked about in our first two episodes. You know, um, in our first episode, we just deconstructed the recent Supreme Court ruling in the Students for Fair Admissions against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. We spoke with Art Coleman of the Education Council and Julie Park of the University of Maryland in, in episode one, and then followed in episode two with Chancellor Nancy Cantor of the University of Rutgers Newark to discuss anchor institutions and the future of equity and justice in higher education in the aftermath of the SCOTUS decision. In our third episode, all three of us will be here to offer commentary on an interview with Dr. Carlton Green. What I really like about this episode is that it builds on the first two episodes and provides connections about how to do this work in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think in this episode, Dr. Carlton Green really gets into the thick of it when he's talking about racial identity development and whiteness. Um, and I think it's really important that we break down whiteness a little bit. 
whiteness and white racial identity tends to refer to the way that white people, customs, cultures, and beliefs um, operate as the standard by which all others have to be compared to. And if we don't conform or embody or assimilate, there tends to be some real consequences for not doing so. Whiteness conceptually is what's deemed as normal and puts on the back burner the rest of us who are racialized um, that don't match. Toni Morrison, I feel like, says it best. In this country, American means white. Everybody else has to hyphenate. And one thing I am clear about in the system of whiteness is the darker you are, the more hell you are experiencing within these systems. And so this is also for all of us, people of color, white folks, to be able to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, the, how are you interacting within these systems? How are you holding each other accountable when you are seeing whiteness at play or when you are participating in a system of colorism? And so let's jump right in to the interview with Dr. Carlton E. Green. now really draws on anti-racism as an issue of power and decentering whiteness and helping people to liberate themselves and their institutions. And can you talk a little bit more about your work and how you go about that? Yeah, I would, uh, a few things, right? I think that certainly when I think about being a, uh, being somebody who was trained to use racial identity development theory in my work, being trained to use it as a tool for assessing systems, right, and how systems might be functioning. A really important part of the theoretical understanding that we get from, from Dr. Helms's work is understanding really that we are moving, right, from in this trajectory from having sort of like these internalized racist perspectives or being really um, connected to racism in a way that is harmful to moving through it and understanding what it could look like to be, according in Dr. Helms' writing, to be non-racist. Currently, maybe we might be using the words anti-racism. Part of that understanding and the way that I that I the way that I'm thinking about doing this work is consistently trying to make sure that we are centering the experiences of people who are marginalized by racism, right? So that we can understand more about what that is costing the systems and how. Um, those bodies are functioning in the system and maybe not operating at their uh, at the highest level of functioning. And so there's a way of centering them, right, and talking about their experiences. But there's also this piece, if you will, uh, you, you talked about decentering whiteness. <clears throat> I think the language that I'm trying to adapt, adapt these days is how do we put whiteness under the microscope mm. so we can actually take a look at it. Yeah, say more about that. Um, you know, when, when we're thinking about whiteness, when we're talking about how it is that we have adapted a race-related perspective in this country that really says that white people and their bodies and their ways of being and their beliefs are more valuable than the bodies and beliefs and ways of being a people of color, right? If we really put that on the table and say, let's start from here, right, as a way of understanding how things are functioning, that kind of is not typical, right, in, in DEI work. In DEI work, we really want to, we're typically trained to talk about what are we going to do to bring more people of color, right, into these systems where we happen to find ourselves working or where we are, like, trying to provide services. The issue has always been and continues to be that, yes, we can bring more people of color in here, right? Um, but if we're not doing something about the harmfulness of whiteness, right, 
the harmfulness of how it is that we value certain ways of being using the using words like professionalism, right? Um, if we're not taking a look at that, then what we're actually doing is just creating a revolving door where we get people of color in, we harm them, and then they have to leave. Or we get people of color in and we demand that they assimilate or they acculturate to these settings, right? To the degree that they actually lose um, the, the very unique qualities that we say that we want them here for, right? And so they're right. just beginning to conform and act like other folks in the system. Um, and that's not exactly what we want to be doing either. So if we're not taking a look at how whiteness tends to demand assimilation or whiteness punishes people for showing up as being, being their authentic selves, then we're not actually doing something that's going to transform a system, right? And right. that is really hard for people to talk about, right? I was just sitting with a leader doing some coaching, and the person is working in an organization that that provides services to traumatize people, right, within the context of a legal system. And the person, and and this organization has committed to racial equity. They they're commit and they're committed to talking about whiteness, right? And what is happening is that that is very, very um, unsettling for the people in the organization, including some of the people of color, right? right. It's not right. something that we are accustomed to doing. So that notion of whiteness and the standard by which other people are judged is really important here. Um, it's something that I addressed in, in episode number two with Nancy Cantor, uh, where we were talking about inclusion as oftentimes misunderstood as bringing other people into our institutions and socializing them, acculturating them to our values and our norms, how we allow people to um, come in and take ownership of our institutions, be part of the governance of our institutions, right? I think what Carlton also is naming, right, is the harmfulness of whiteness. And that can show up in a lot of different spaces, but um, specifically, I think for students of color who are navigating predominantly white institutions, um, it is it can be a challenge, right, for them to be in these spaces where the culture of whiteness is very pervasive. Folks aren't necessarily wanting to talk about race because, or racism um, because of whatever kinds of discomfort they might feel about the realities and the histories of brutality that exist within those stories. And to be very clear, when we talk about systems of whiteness, human beings have to hold up those systems. And yeah. some of those times, those systems, those people do not look like white people. And so I think we have to be clear about naming systems and not continuing to point at human beings and people because we can fundamentally look at the Supreme Court, we can look around that Supreme Court, and we can say we have a white woman who was, who's participating in patriarchy and whiteness. We have a black man who was a dark-skinned southern black man who is deeply entrenched in participating in patriarchy and whiteness he is a person who is holding up the system and so the clearer we get about that i think the sooner we can probably heal and maybe institute some policies that will actually change white supremacy <laughs> i think you know we should talk a little bit about dr helms's work just to just Boy, to, in case people aren't familiar with that in the field say it yes. What I, what I love most about Dr. Helm's work, though, is that she is constantly encouraging us to look within and heal from within. 
is that you will be a person who creates harm unless you do some healing of what you have inherited just by being part of living within the system. I mean, she doesn't just talk about white identity development, right? She talks about people of color and their identity development as well. And the idea that we as people of color oftentimes get indoctrinated, get enculturated to the whiteness that pervades all of our lived experiences. And that's so critical for us to examine and to understand and to heal from, which, you know, will come out a little bit later in this interview, right? But I also think about the way that like whiteness punishes people who name racism and name whiteness as a thing, right? And I don't know. I think it's how whiteness operates within our institutions. It's almost trying to invisibilize itself. Um, so they're not we're not able to, you know, pinpoint it for what it is and work to dismantle it. The same reason people hire you will be the same reason people will try to fire you. Absolutely. I feel that. Uh, you know, I've felt that throughout my career, honestly. Career. No question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've been there. Uh, I've been there a lot. And, and you know, as a, as a pretty highly acculturated brown person, you know, I've dedicated the bulk of my career to doing equity and justice work in higher education. And one of the reasons that people have hired me is the same reason that they've said, yeah, we don't really like what you're doing here. Um, but, you know, part of that goes back to what Dr. Green is talking about. Let's listen to what Dr. Green has to say next. And so how do we how do we work through some of those challenging issues where um, white people feel uncomfortable talking about race or acknowledging the power that exists in structures to facilitate whiteness and to perpetuate the status quo. Um, and people of color are feeling uncomfortable as well, because in some ways, those conversations may even in, in, er, inadvertently um, harm them. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, what, how do we do? How do we manage that? What do we do with that? How do we encourage people to engage in these conversations across those? It, it's it, that's a really you're right important part of the conversation. And the first thing that comes to my mind is I think this is why psychologists are uniquely positioned to do this work. Mm -hmm. um, because a part of what we're talking about is understanding people human behavior in the context where people work and live. We have to, I think, be doing multiple things, right? You know, I've started out talking about, um, and, and this is a part of my, and actually maybe I might be even developing this more as I'm sitting here with you. I've always tried to, or been recently talking to people about, so like two trains running, right? You've got to be talking about whiteness and how it is harmful. And you still got to be talking about people of color and how they're being harmed and what they need, right? If we're not doing both of those things, we're not doing really effective work. When we talk about how to do this, right, within within the context of, of the places where we find ourselves, yes, we have to be, as, as many so like anti-racist educators are talking about these days, we've got to be talking about the policies and the practices, right, these broader systemic issues that are going on. And you still got to be talking about the people, right? and changing their consciousness and addressing their feelings, right? And really meeting them at the point where they are, be they white folks who are sort of like in this, people of color with sort of like these less sophisticated ways of thinking about these issues, right? Who might be really resistant to them. 
Um, you've got to be thinking about how to address the needs of the individuals who are being harmed in these systems, right? Um, and so th there, are, there are folks who are saying like, um, we've got to be just fo so focused on changing policy or so, so focused on changing these broader systemic issues. That's true. That, that is 100% true. And you still got these people in the system who you got to um, attend to because the way that I think about it is that well, my friend, Dr. Miriam Jernigan says this often. I just read this in Esther Armad's book, um, Emotional Justice. They both say, and systems are made up of people, right? Yeah. And if you have people in place who don't have the consciousness to actually enact these policies and practices in um, equitable ways, we're going to end up still re like re recreating the same problems that we've always had, right? So you've got to be doing both of these things. And in some ways, right. I think that as psychologists, again, we're uniquely positioned to do this because a part of the work is not only understanding the systems, but understanding how do we talk to people about the psychology of doing this, right? We've really got to be talking to the, both talking to them about their thoughts, their behaviors, but also their feelings. Because oftentimes the feeling part is what keeps us stuck. If people are not being tasked with doing the work of understanding how their feelings can sort of like hijack the process or derail the process, we're going to keep, again, we're going to keep recreating these really harmful settings and policies that are not necessarily in the best interest of anybody's life, right? Absolutely. Um, right. So so a big piece of this from, from my perspective, this, and this is one of the things that I enjoy doing, right, which I think you, this is why you need a, a multidimensional staff or multidimensional team of people doing this work. I love sitting with people and having them really kind of process through and understand their own feelings that get in the way of doing this work, right? Mm -hmm. um, which which I think is a really pivotal part of this. I think that there are, are other folks out there like you, right? Who are really um, skilled at being able to think about the systemic pieces and the policies and some of the broader practices that need to be put in place. But you need teams of people who are able to do all of it together rather right. than just thinking that you just need one. Right. And that that goes to the idea that, first of all, higher education institutions are a microcosm of the broader society. Right. Mm -hmm. The racism that is out there is also within all of our institutions. It's embedded in the foundations of mm -hmm. how these higher education institutions have been developed and created. And, well, this is something that I always try to I always do. Um, you'll hear me referencing a lot of black women um, in the context of the conversation. Um, I was listening to Dr. Tama Bryant, who is currently the president of the American Psychological Association. And in some opening comments that Dr. Bryant gave to the group, one of the things that she said was, right, she was just really trying to affirm for people that racism is real, right? Racism is a part of our lives. Racism is a part of the history of this country. Racism is a part of the history of psychology. And then she went on to say, racism is here in our organization. Racism is in this room today. Right. Um, there are ways that we really try to think about racism or whiteness, certainly the harmful aspects of it as being part of the past. Right. And that we have moved beyond them. Right. But to your point, Roger, right. In higher education, racism exists in classrooms to this day. Racism is in the tenure processes that we use to give people access to lifelong you know, um, existences in higher education. Racism is in 
um, the, the, the staff evaluations, right? So those yearly performance reviews that people um, are subjected to. Racism is in higher education today. It's living, breathing. And so we have to really be um, attending to the fact that it too is a really, not only a historical aspect of our organizations, but it's a current living, breathing aspect of, of higher education. Absolutely. And, and as we work to change those systems that you're talking about, you're, you're talking about the head and the heart, right? The, mm-hmm. the idea that part of what you have to do as a person face to face with individuals, we have to work with their understanding of themselves, but also their emotional outcomes and for people who get marginalized and harmed by that. The, the thing that's coming to mind for me, right, even as we have this conversation about power, um, I want to come back to Esther Armas' work. Um, Esther Armas' book that I love um, is titled Emotional Justice. And this is basically what, what she says about emotional justice. It's a new roadmap for doing diversity, equity, inclusion work. She says very explicitly that the old roadmaps that we've been using have not gotten us actually what we um, want them to be giving us, right? And a big piece of that is because it has actually centered the feelings of white folks. Her work, I think, was really a big piece of her work is informed by the truth and reconciliation work that comes out of South Africa. And in her reporting on that and interviewing people, what she really discovered was that all that that work was like hugely, um, uh, widely reported, right? And seemed to be really monumental. As she was digging into it and asking some of the leaders of the, of the movement about what it is that they were um, hoping to accomplish, what she discovered is that it was really white-centered, right? Getting really white people absolution for the harmful histories, the harmful violence, the harmful policies that were in place that, sort of, that benefited white folks, right, and really harmed um, Black people. And so her questions were, and so, and so what, 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 are, what are Black people getting out of this, right? And so the shift was always around back to, right, the white folks, right? And so a big piece of what she's saying, right, is that we can't keep doing that if we're going to just keep centering the comfort, right, the feelings of white folks. Her premise is that we all have some emotional work to do when it comes to fighting for racial justice. White right. men have work to do. White women have work to do. That is different from the work of Black men and Black uh, black women, right? Um, thinking about, I think that, 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 that her typologies really kind of lay out um, maybe about uh, specifically about black and white, but there are ways that we can find our find all of ourselves in this conversation. What is the work that I have to do? What is some of the internal emotional work that I need to be able to understand and do for myself to, to, to see how it is that I participate in racial injustice and how it is that I need to be healing from that in order to foster racial justice for folks, right? Um, racial justice for myself. Um, and so there is this piece, again, that I come back to, which, you know, is, is a, again, one of the ways that I'm constantly thinking about this is that if, in fact, folks are not tasked with really developing, and she, the, this is a, some of her language too, right, the language of emotional justice, right, um, and how it is that you cannot dismiss the emotional components of um, this work, right, and really invest yourself in it, 
we're not going to move forward, right? And 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 in some ways, this is how power functions, right? In the context of mm-hmm. organizations, if in fact we can pathologize the emotional contours of doing um, racial justice work, if we can dismiss um, black people's rage, black people's worry, right? Latino folks. Um, fears, indigenous peoples um, uh, uh, consistent saying that we are being um, made to be invisible in these processes. And that is really demoralizing. If we can pathologize that and say, right, that that's that's not what's happening, right? Y'all are just being really hyper-emotional in in the context of all this, right? That's one of the ways that power functions because what power is doing in that context is creating a narrative about people of color then that caused people of color to have to respond to that narrative. And so the the work gets diverted, right? So now we're dealing with this versus actually moving forward towards racial justice. Dr. Green gives us so much to hold in that segment because I think uh, I love that you two are in conversation because you both have experiences in DEI spaces, specifically diversity, equity, inclusion offices. And I, I appreciate that in for this podcast, he talks specifically about how we're, how we're hiring in those spaces to make a holistic team because so much of our DEI spaces may have a person who can train. They may have a person who's really good at programming. They may have a person who is the CDO or vice president for diversity inclusion. But how many people are solely focused on changing people's behavior through their brain, right? Like this work also is a brain science, and I don't think we give enough Um, kudos to that, that people have to change their brain and heart to actually do anti-racism work. Oh yeah. Um, And I, 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 I loved that that continues, continued to come in. And I know that I'm a feeler and (laughs) I do know that it is very important to just not talk about the theory, but to talk about how does this make you feel? when you are experiencing these things or you have just been told that someone is experiencing racism from you, how does that make you feel? And I love the people that Carlton has brought in for us to read and understand more. And I also give huge kudos to what he was saying around um, Dr. Worthington's work around climate surveys. They go together. You can't do brain science and you can't do heart science with people if you don't functionally have the data to know what people are actually going through on your campus. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I have to say, you know, Dr. Green and I both share the profession of psychology. We're both counseling psychologists. And, you know, it's been it's been, you know, uh, quite a few times that, you know, people have approached me and said, you know, I'm really thankful that you're doing this work as a psychologist, that you bring a certain skill and background to the work that is about the head and the heart and really helps people to understand and and deal with some of the very harsh hard emotions that come up around this work and and so you know i i really enjoy working with dr green and other people who are like minded about you know both the systems and the people mm-hmm. in those systems have to be the focus of our work and our change efforts yeah i couldn't agree more i feel like that was such a powerful statement 
Um, because I do think at times we are focused on policy practices, the institution itself, and how it has one historically built itself off of right the the backs of enslaved folks and indigenous folks. Um, and so I think it's also really, really important to name the people that make up our systems that continue to perpetuate the system and the status quo. Um, and I appreciate the emotionality and making sure that we are getting to the heart. Um, I've also seen a lot that's been put out there as of late around DEI work in different industries that is kind of taking a critical look at emotionality and empathy, right? And I think some of the arguments that I've been seeing is that empathy isn't going to be the antidote to racism. Um, and I see folks really struggling with this idea of like, how do we get white folks or people in positions of power to empathize with those who are most marginalized? Um, and I think that that's a real conundrum and something that we got to grapple with um, as well in higher education institutions. It is a both end, right? It is both the systems and both the people. And I think that at times, you know, if Black Lives Matter and the the summer of 2020 with all of these racial reckonings and all of these videos and tapes of Black people being brutally murdered did not, I think, you know, incite the kind of change that we needed to see. Instead, we saw a backlash um, with the SCOTUS ruling, right? We see this kind of reversion back to colorblindness. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering, like, yes, how do we do both? And how do we really tend to the hearts of people um, that are in positions of power that need to change? And how do we, again, elevate and center the healing of those that are being most impacted by racism? And I think what you just said, Kaya, was so smart because we have relied on growing empathy, helping people to be more empathetic. I also think what Dr. Green does not say that I've heard from Dr. Green, I've heard from Dr. Kumei Shorter-Gooden, I've heard from Dr. Roger Worthington, Dr. Beth Douthert-Cohen, Dr. Mark Primal Vargas, anybody who is entrenched in this work may or may not have a PhD, I'm just naming these people, but they have made it very clear that anybody can cause harm. That harm is not just caused by people in power, not by just white folks. And I think that's very important as Dr. Worthington and Dr. Green, at what we just heard when they talk about the brain science. The faster you can get all of us to understand that Tamia, as a dark-skinned, fat, black woman, can be just as harmful to someone who looks just like her as a cis straight white man, I think there becomes some clarity around the work that needs to happen internally with Tamia. Absolutely. And and I, you know, I just have to say this this is a great segue into the next segment of the interview with Dr. Green, where he really digs into the healing process for people Ooh. of color in this work. Recovery. Let's listen some more. How do we center people of color in this work then? How do we help to promote power uh, among people to resist, to be self-determined communities, to heal? Well, I think that, you know, interestingly enough, that in and of itself feels like a pretty radical thing. 
when we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion work, again, we have said that this is for the benefit of people of color, right? Increased representation, right? That's supposed to benefit um, right. racially minoritized communities. Sometimes putting us on the pathway to sort of like upward mobility, you know, giving greater us access, right? Yeah, all those things, greater access to um, capitalism, basically. Um, but what we haven't been saying, right, is that that's actually like it's window dressing for white institutions, right? Um, it's actually how white institutions are posi positioning that in order to try to benefit themselves, so, like to appear like non-racist, to appear inclusive, right? Um, in so doing, what that traditional DEI perspective does is that it does not actually center the healing of communities of color or people of color. It's actually, you know, people might disagree with this, but it's actually just a new form of slavery, right? We invite people of color into these institutions of higher education to actually serve the institution. And then when we say, when people of color say things like, actually, this doesn't feel so great, or this feels like I'm being used, right? If I'm if my face is showing up on this brochure for the institution as as one of you know it it's it's star you know scholars, right? When there are five black people on this campus and we're all being treated terribly, but my face is there, right, on, on this on this institution's brochure, or you know, uh, folks of color, you know, I hear black women say often in the context of these institutions. We're being overlooked. Our voices are being marginalized. Where our ideas are not, not actually being taken seriously in the context of, of of these institutions, right? We're just here to be seen and not heard. Which I think is why your question is actually the really important question, because if we're asking, what are we doing to promote healing in communities of color? How are we how are we structuring our institutions? How are we structuring our classrooms? How are we structuring our offices in a way that says, we want our people of color to be healed as a result of working here, right? That's a pretty revolutionary thing, right? In, in the context of this work, um, we don't generally ask that question. Whiteness actually doesn't even allow us to think of people of color in, in this context, right? To be whole human beings who are worthy of that type of experience, right? So for me, I think that it would actually be starting with that primary question, Roger, right? What are we doing in higher education to actually promote healing, not only for communities of color, but even if I'm working, if I'm a, if I'm a faculty member working with a graduate student, I should be asking myself, especially if I'm working with a ra racially minoritized person, what am I doing to facilitate their well-being? What am I doing to actually attend to the healing from years, you know, especially at the doctoral level, you've been through all this, all this education, years of racial harm that that my students have experienced, even as they're trying to get to the other side of this doctoral program or get to the, you know, to, to graduation. What am I doing? What's my responsibility here? And then, right, how does that begin to affect departments? If 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 I as a faculty member, I'm centering that as a part of my work, right? How do I continue to try and promote that at the department level, right? Which then has the, the opportunity to, to try to begin to change the actual institution if we go out from there, right? And to, to, to on some level to not 
want to be really, uh, it, it may be because, again, I have not been a faculty member, I want to, you know, say this. It's not even just about what are we doing for faculty and students, but oftentimes it's what are we doing to support the staff where we know that there are more people of color working in higher education institutions. What are institutions doing to actually facilitate and prioritize the healing of those black and brown bodies, right? We know oftentimes, like from so much research, black and brown bodies on campuses have been safe havens for students and faculty of color when it comes to surviving in those institutions, right? And oftentimes, a lot of the talk that we do around race and racism actually centers faculty and students. There are so many staff members, right, who have been harmed by racism, by whiteness in the context of our organizations. And oftentimes we don't spend enough of our resources doing the moral job of promoting healing for those bodies, right? Um, so, it, it, you know, it, 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 and this, this could sound really um, high-minded to people, but, right, this is in some ways why you would need to, like, a consultant to help you come in, right? But, but this shift around healing for, for bodies and people and communities of color, right, in the context of higher education would be a major change, right? So practitioners, you should, faculty, administrators, you should be asking yourself, what am I doing to actually promote healing? That's a very different perspective than just promoting representation and diversity. So what a powerful segment. I mean, you know, just mic drop on that. Uh, I have to say, no question. Uh, you know, I was, I, was at a, I was at a conference last week uh, at a convening at a law school, and, and I was talking to a law school admissions professional. And um, we were having a conversation about the recent Supreme Court decision, you know, and, and this is in a law school, right? And, and uh, he starts telling me, I, I don't know that I'm ready to read all of these stories oh. that are going to start coming forward right. from students who feel compelled Hell. to share right. their trauma right. in their essays in their admissions change. and because hey. that's the only way they think they're going to let get let in and and that was such a profound comment that I received from that man I mean I, I was just sitting there awestruck by by him saying that he's going to have to sit there and read those stories and he's going to have to make you know decisions about admissions and what's so deep is I Howard played Harvard this weekend, so I was away at Harvard. And I met a Latinxus who works at Harvard doing some sort of DEI. And she kind of said the same thing, but very differently. She literally said that pretty much Harvard is like the admissions um, affirmative action uh, groundswell. But what she named was what she's saying to people is from the gate, jump in and say, hi, my name is Tamia Webster. I'm as a black woman, blah, blah, blah. Right. So she's actually encouraging people to utilize their story in the admissions process. And Roger is saying the exact opposite. Like this other person's like, I'm not even ready for the level of onslaught of what is going to happen when I have to read all these stories. Exactly. And, and part of that, right, is, is not just trying to figure a way in for give them access. Exactly. And, and, and at the same time, right, the, the one of the things that was so profound about what this admissions professional was saying is that, you know, it's, it's painful for me to imagine how that student has to center their trauma yeah. in order to gain access. But then he's also saying, 
And for me, as a black student affairs professional, as a no, missions professional, I don't know that I can deal with that right. on, a, on just like a day-in, day-out right. basis, just reading people's trauma every single day and having to make decisions about, should I let this person in? So yeah, I agree. I'm coming from a college advising background where, again, predominantly Black high school, mostly Black students that I'm working with who are now about to write their admission statements and thinking about the SCOTUS decision and its implications. To your point right there is this, yes, let's talk about the realities of your lived experiences, the truth of how you have had to endure, overcome, right? Like just navigate a very racialized world. And then at the same time, asking you to paint your trauma for admissions folks to say, yes, come to our institutions. And then there aren't supports in place to help you heal from that, right? From that racism or from that racial trauma. And so I feel like Dr. Green is really, really getting us to think about liberation and about freedom and about healing and how do we do that work um, within our institutions within our different functional areas like what is that what does healing really really look like for us and how do we center that versus you know this kind of critical mass let's bring everybody in the door let's get all the black folks at the table um, but you know again we're still operating within a system that does not care about our humanity and it makes me think about pulling in um, Dr. William Liu and Rosina Liu's work around racial justice and how they see white supremacy and whiteness um, as a means to annihilate, right? Like they use that kind of language. There are real consequences um, to our detriment. And so, yeah, healing. How do we heal um, collectively and how do we heal and center folks um, who have experienced a lot of harm living in their bodies, right? Just living. Kai, that was super smart. And so we're going to listen to this last segment from Dr. Green and Dr. Worthington, where he does bring us home. He talks a little bit about Rosina and Williams' work, the Lou's work, and he doesn't use the language annihilation. I'm always like, it's hit in the chest by that word, but it's absolutely true. Like Roger brought us in by naming the fact that this, this man who's a, uh, admissions professional is already thinking fundamentally about let's let's name a, a thing the annihilation of his mental health as he reads the as he reads these admissions essays from students of color and so let's hear from Dr. Worthington and Dr. Green as they close it out If you were going to give some recommendations to leaders about how to promote a more healing atmosphere on their campuses, if you're going to have an audience of presidents or provosts, or what would you offer them in terms of creating a healing atmosphere on their campuses? I would probably say, think about so like my own two trains running type of type of suggestion here. The big one would probably be to ask higher education administrators, presidents, leaders to be thinking about what frameworks, what theories are you using to guide the work that you're doing on your campuses? If your frameworks are not actually starting right with the experiences of people of color in mind, the racialized experiences of people of color in mind, to the degree that it is naming that racism is a really harmful identity forming experience for people. Right. If your if your frameworks, theories, approaches don't start there, then you're probably not going to be doing the work 
of actually promoting healing for communities of color, right? And that's really taken from the work of our colleagues, um, William Lou, Rosina Liu, um, and Richard Chan, right? And then their most one of their most recent articles where they really say to psychologists, right, if your theories of change, if your theories of healing don't account for racism, right, then are you really healing, right, people of color, right? Which is, you know, we know to be really harmful. And so a similar thing for higher education leaders, what framework are you using? Right. Uh, what leadership development theories are you like? Wh whatever, whatever it is that you are, are are feasting on in order to be able to to feed your own knowledge of how to transform your institution. If it does not start with racism, right, and does not um, have a uh, a real clear understanding that that people of color one of the um, tasks that you should be sort of like attending to is how do I promote healing for people of color? Then your theory is probably your theory, your approach is not going to be beneficial right for for folks of color so that that's one piece right the other piece that i think that becomes per, uh, that becomes um in, important right really at the personal level is to be asking yourself consistently like what am i doing to unlearn how whiteness has informed my approach to education right whether or not you are a white person or a person of color how has whiteness informed your approach to education or your understanding of education so that you can begin unlearning that in addition to that who am I surrounding myself with, right? If in fact we are trying to promote a different type of higher education setting that is attending to the healing of people of color, right? Then what you will notice is that you won't keep hiring the same types of people um, for your um, uh, C-suite level jobs in higher education. You, will, you won't be able to do that because they bring in the same whiteness that we've all, all learned, right? And they keep replicating that right and so who are the folks that you're hiring who are the folks that you're hiring to sit at the table with you that you're surrounding yourself with and as a leader are you open to hearing what it is that they're saying right even having so like your one woman cdo or your one black person as a cdo that doesn't necessarily do it right because what we know right is that if, especially from a racial identity perspective, oftentimes those people sitting at the table have sort of like traded in whiteness sometimes in order to be able to get access to these rooms. And so they are susceptible, as I saw uh, uh, another Twitter, um, somebody write on Twitter, they are susceptible to doing the work of oppression in order to have proximity to whiteness. And so you got to be surrounding yourself with way more folks who, right, and, and and a part of the way that I've I've seen this work done really well, and I say really well because it's a model that I think that me and some colleagues use, right, when I'm working with Dr. Helms or Dr. Jernigan, no essay, we kind of operate in this um, uh, mode of iron sharpening iron, right? Dr. Helms is our, is our advisor. Dr. Helms is a giant in this field, right? But Dr. Helms has created a space where it feels like, or we've all co-created a space where we can actually challenge each other right, and disagree with each other about things, right, and really put ideas on the table that we are trying to refine right? in the best interest, not only, right, of, of, the, of the clients that we work with, but in some ways in the best interest of our working together, right? If, if, if higher education leaders are not actually surrounding themselves with people who are going to tell them the truth, and they're going to be open to tell them racial truths, right, and they're going to be open to talking about how racism is functioning in institutions, not is racism functioning institutions, but how wow. racism is functioning in, in institutions, right? Then they're not actually going to be doing the work of transforming their institutions.
right? So you've got to adapt your frameworks that actually center racism and whiteness as being really harmful. And you've got to be surrounding yourself, right? To the surrounding yourself with people to the degree that you are not afraid to, or have actually a home base to come back to, to be asking questions about whiteness and how it's functioning to, to harm people and not just the people on your campus, but how is it harming you? That's right. And, 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 and people need to decompartmentalize their lives a little bit, right? Um, you can't just come to work and institute these practices in a work setting. If you don't live it every single day of your life, it's it's a performative act to just yeah. come to work and pretend like this is the only place that it's important. 100%, right? Um, one of the things that I hear, have heard Miriam, um, Dr. Jernigan Noah, to talk about in, in some of the conversations that she's had about whiteness um, and, and, and racism, right, with parents. And, and uh, I'm going to make a point here, right? She, folks invite her in because a part of her expertise is to talk about racism in children, right? And, you know, of course we can talk about kids, but in some ways she's talking to parents about, right, what they're doing in the context of their, of raising their kids. And so, as you talk to parents, right, um, she's talking to them about how racism manifests and, and what it looks like um, for kids and how, you know, children might have different reactions to racism or they might have their questions might be different um, than, um, than than adults questions. Right. But but she always gets into a place of being able to say to the parents. Right. I can talk to you all day about my black son. Right. And about black children and what it is that they need. But the question that I have for you is. What are you teaching your son about my black son, right? How is it that you are learning about racism in the context of your private home life, right? And in your personal life so that you can actually be doing that at your local address and not just thinking about what is happening, right? At your place of work. I say that to say that there are ways, especially in the home setting, right? that white parents can operate that seem really humane, that seem really kind, that seem really nice, right? Um, because they're trying to be good people, um, that they actually pass on racism. And so parents, people in homes, in our personal lives, we really have to be asking ourselves and actually doing the work of, right, unlearning how we pass on racism to subsequent generations. Because if we're not being personally accountable for it in our homes, it actually won't make a lot of sense or won't, won't do very much if we are just, uh, you know, trying to do it in higher education. Things are happening in homes that need to be undone. People have to be personally accountable there. That's excellent. Dr. Carlton Green, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with us on our Thought Leaders podcast series. Any parting comments for our audience today? Sure. I think that the, the big thing that I'm generally saying, well, two things that, are, that I'm generally saying to people about doing this work, right, um, is we all have power, right? And oftentimes, especially in higher education, we hear faculty, staff, administrators, especially when it comes to racism, say things like, well, I don't really have any power to do anything about that. What people should be understanding, though, is that they are then using their power to distance themselves from race-related issues, right, from being accountable for how racism is functioning um, in their organizations, right? Um, 
uh, I think it's Alice Walker who says, right, the most common way people give up their power is by thinking that they don't have any. And so people really have to be thinking about how it is that you do have some, you always have power. The question becomes, what are you doing with it? What are you doing? What are you doing with her? And so, and then, and then the last thing that I that I generally say to people, and this actually, you know, um, our good friend Tamia and her experiences has really informed my way of thinking about this. Right? Is that um, when situations arise and they seem hard or they seem scary, do it scared, right? You have to do it scared, right? You have to have some courage in order in order to be able to do this work. Um, and to do it well or to do it effectively. And the courage is oftentimes about um, being the the lone, it can be about being the lone voice in the room, right? Um, and actually speaking up when it's hard to speak up. Or making mistakes. And the courage is about making mistakes. That was, that was actually exactly where I was gonna go, Roger, right? Um, <laughs> courage is about making mistakes because what we know, right, from a theoretical perspective around, certainly around race and, and developing your racial identity, is that the people who are developing in more sophisticated ways are saying to themselves, oh, I'm going to get in here and I'm going to do this. I'm probably going to make some mistakes, but okay. And then I'm going to learn from it, right? And so people have to really have some courage to make some mistakes and then some courage to apologize and be accountable when you have made mistakes, right? Um, if you're going to promote healing, if you're going to promote communities that are actually inclusive of people of color, right? You got to do the work of earning and gaining the trust of those people. And so a part of a big part of that is about apologizing when you make mistakes, even though you didn't intend intend to make those mistakes, right? Invite people into a conversation about how it is that they have been harmed rather than inviting them to a conversation about your intent. So Tamia got a shout out in that segment. Hey, baby boo. That, that was good. That was good. I liked it. Well, you know Carlton's my heart. We're yeah. we're long-term, long-time colleagues and friends, and I've learned a lot from him. But I, you know, to listen to him on this podcast, it just brings back memory after memory where I watched him actually put, put himself on the line for the greater good. Right after... COVID and we were all sent home, we had to pull all of our programming from in-person to online. And there was a meeting called with all the DEI professionals and practitioners from across campus. And we're on a Zoom call and I am naming and I'm saying, this is how we can make this happen, right? There was a group of men on the, and I'm going to name group of black men on the call who were like, great. And they proceed to have a meeting, like schedule a meeting in real time. And they don't invite me to the meeting where I have made these um, these suggestions of what we should do. And Dr. Green, in the middle of the meeting, says, I just want to name that that was Tamia's idea. And not only did you not give her credit for the idea, you've uninvited her to her own meeting. And so I think Carlton showed at that moment that I know that that wasn't something he wanted to do is to call in people that look like him, shared the same gender as him, um, because he also probably was put out of the, the group after that because he's, you know, but I have watched him time after time model behavior 
that will get you put out. And so I think it's important to, to name the fact that this is not easy, that this is not something that's going to make you sometimes a whole bunch of friends or keep you popular, but it's absolutely something that you have to model. And when people are not doing the right thing, you have to lovingly call them in to do something different. I was invited to the meeting. It ended up being fine. But in that very moment, those black men were displaying deep patriarchy and sexism in real time, and it had to be interrupted. And so I think Dr. Green not only talks about in this podcast, gives us example after example on what to do. I think some of us have experienced him actually doing that. And I believe that's just as important as actually being theoretical and heady with all of these things. That's so good. I love that. And and I hope that some of those folks had the courage to acknowledge their mistakes, as he points out. Right. That's good. <laughs> Mia, I agree. Like, having that example, I think, is really profound um, about the sacrifice that happens when we right, carry the mantle of liberation and of freedom um, and say we want to be anti-racist in this work um, and in this world. Um, and so I thought that that was a really powerful example. And I think Dr. Green just continues to elevate, right, the importance of doing the internal work. We have to personalize that work, that we have the influence to engage in good work um, and liberatory work. And that part of this is trying to do so in a community of truth tellers. Um, and I think those that are, are willing to hold us accountable and hopefully in that work, we're able to center healing. So um, I'm really appreciative of both of you um, and of Dr. Green. He's been really influential in my development as a practitioner, as an anti-racist practitioner. I'm hoping that our audience takes all the gems and nuggets that were dropped along the way and it, are using that to apply to their practice and also to their personal lives, right? Because this isn't just about professional work. Um, this is about the personal and about our individual journeys as well. And so, you know, what we're, what we're going to do here, I think, is um, just mention the fact that we already have lined up for our fourth episode, Dr. Annalise Singh, who is the author of the Racial Healing Handbook. And um, she's going to continue this conversation about racial healing in a way that takes us to yet another level and um, builds on all of the things that Dr. Green has offered us in this episode today. And, and so we look forward to doing that uh, in our next episode, and we'll see you then. We want to thank you for joining us on Thought Leaders Unplugged. Subscribe to our podcast to stay connected for upcoming episodes where we learn from thought leaders, exchange ideas, and co-create an inclusive educational landscape. This podcast is a production of the University of Maryland Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. Acknowledgements include the following individuals, Daitu DeSasa, Daniel Moore, and the entire team at the Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education for their contributions to the production, review, and editing of this podcast. This is Thought Leaders Unplugged. Mm -hmm.